0: this is an AMI podcast i'm Joita gupta and this is the pulse there has been a significant impact of the global covid19 pandemic on disabled people in low and middle income countries people with disabilities in these countries have faced significant discrimination being deprioritized in health care further exclusion from education facing severe poverty due to unemployment, a lack of social protection, and facing violence in both community and institutional settings. For many people with disabilities, these exclusions have been just as life-threatening as the pandemic itself. It thus stands to reason that COVID-19 recovery must not only account for people with disabilities, but indeed must prioritize them. Today, we discuss the impact of the pandemic on people with disabilities in low and middle income countries. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Jowita Gupta. It's really good to be with you today. And we're spending a little bit of time going over a very extensive report that came out recently, talking about how people with disabilities have fared during the pandemic in low to middle income countries. And I think it's an important consideration for those of us who live in Canada and have, I suppose, relatively speaking, had many privileges. Joining me now to discuss the report is its co-author, Vera Kubins, who is a research fellow in the Department of Education at the University of Birmingham. Vera joins me today from Birmingham. Hello and welcome to the program. It's really good of you to take some time and speak to us about your research and your findings. Thank you very much for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about what drove you to investigate how people with disabilities were faring in low to middle income countries? Um, Our research is
1: part of um, a wider project that looks at the impact um, of um, disability uh, in low and middle income countries, particularly in the Middle East, about access to schooling for um, disabled children and in many uh, low and middle income countries particularly in the Middle East, there are significant barriers for children to, to access schooling. So, and as the pandemic emerged, we kind of broadened that to look particularly at the, uh, the, the impact more broadly for disabled people across low and middle income countries. And we were approached by uh, the UN Partnership of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that we're working with to um, develop a framework that enables countries and uh, UN bodies to carry out situational analysis to both assess the impact and then to take measures to address disability-specific impacts of COVID-19 and build back better. So uh, our job is really to ensure that that framework is informed by uh, uh, empirical evidence that takes into account what's actually happening to disabled
0: people in low- and middle-income countries. And so what sort of data did you use? Did you have a chance to interview people with disabilities and get first-hand accounts? Did you do a data analysis? What was your methodology like? Uh,
1: The data that um, we've got so far is based on the literature review. So I looked at 113 both uh, empirical research uh, articles, as well as grey literature, including government reports, UN policy briefs, and reports from non-governmental organisations and disabled people organisations that uh, detail the impact of COVID-19 on disability. So we're looking mostly at secondary data rather than generating data ourselves. And we're assessing kind of the the broader evidence emerging and trying to draw out the, the common themes, because it's mm-hmm. we're looking very much at Obviously, uh, the, the bigger picture in terms of looking at all low and middle income countries as a monolith rather than looking at specific countries. And so it's very important that we don't um,
0: generalize too much, but also kind of draw out the similarities. Mm. Um, and yet, I think it's fair to say that Canada is neither a low nor a middle income country. Uh, we're, we're doing quite well here. Why might your research nevertheless be relevant for people in Canada to pay attention to? I think
1: a lot of the findings that we came across are uh, applicable universally and I've had many people approach me say um, they can really relate to that research. But people from low and middle income countries that we've worked with to feed into the research, but also the situation in the UK where I am is very similar. A lot of the issues I was reading about, writing about and then going away and experiencing them myself, which is quite Mm. surreal in a way. So I think mm-hmm. it really ha- highlights kind of the common problems that we're all still facing, regardless of um, where we're located and regardless of privileges that we might have, um, particularly around sort of dev- devaluing of dis- disabled lives and being deprioritized, being forgotten. I think it's the issues are definitely more pronounced, and there's, cult- there's definitely cultural nuances, but there's a, uh, probably a lot more in common as well than um,
0: you would think at first side Mm. you know uh, one of the problems we have in canada is that most provinces have similar but not exactly Uh, Exact, but don't exactly follow the same definition of disability. So you could have a condition that's considered a disability in one part of the country, but not in another. It doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. How does a researcher such as yourself grapple with the diversity in the definition of disability across various countries? After all, you're looking at um, low and middle income countries as a monolith, but these countries perhaps don't define disability in exactly the same way, do they? I think a lot of the research we looked at were, uh, was either, obviously, academic research
1: or mm-hmm. um, interna- mostly international and, uh, NGOs. So they probably work towards more of a common definition of disability. But one of the key issues that um, is an issue in development and humanitarian research anyway is both the definition of disability and the the, sort of the data that is available on disability for example, numbers of disability, and that's one of the key findings is that that data isn't being collected. So it's very difficult to actually quantify the impact um, of COVID-19 because the data isn't being collected. But there's also, even if it was collected, there's no baseline data. So it's very difficult to really measure kind of the prevalence of disability and then the impact of COVID-19 on disabled people.
0: I'm speaking to Vera Kubins from the University of Birmingham about her findings and a study into, the, uh, into the, the, how disabled people have fared during the pandemic in low to middle income countries. Vera, let's talk a little bit about your findings. Let's start out by talking about infection rates and mortality rates. According to your research, how did people with disabilities fare compared to the non-disabled population?
1: And there isn't much data, I think, uh, published by any countries that disaggregates uh, the impact um, on disabled people. Uh, The only data that's available is actually from the UK, where our Office of National Statistics released data that shows that, I think, two thirds of disabled people roughly, uh, two thirds of people that died from COVID-19 were disabled people. Mm-hmm. But no other country has yet released that data. And while it's generally accepted that disabled people are more likely to um, suffer a bigger impact from COVID-19, uh, it's, I think, important to recognise that there's a significant social aspect to that. There's a lot of social bar- a lot of barriers, and we found a lot of barriers to, for example, accessing protective equipment, mm-hmm. um, significant barriers to information about health, uh, and about the pandemic, um, that meant disabled people couldn't protect themselves. But even if they had that information, they may not be able to afford protective equipment due to poverty. Um, so there's, it's really important to recognise those impacts as well as
0: then the discrimination in accessing treatment. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about some of those barriers to communication, because it's been a it's been proven even here in Canada that people with some kinds of disabilities were disadvantaged, even in, uh, in terms of public health communication uh, regarding the pandemic. You know, Messages around hand washing weren't clear or simple enough. In your research, how effectively did the, uh, did the public health authorities in these low and middle income countries communicate with people with disabilities uh, about some of the public health messages related to the pandemic?
1: I think the evidence is very much towards um, there not being very clear communication. And there's two studies in particular, one that looked at the presence of sign language interpreters during health briefings in low and middle income countries, which found that I think only about 64 percent had sign language interpreters present at briefings and no international organisations, including the World Organisa- Health Organisations, had sign language interpretation at initial briefings. And then there's a second study which looked at health authority websites globally and it found that less than 5% of websites were fully accessible. And in addition to those access barriers, there were also an, a, a number of other barriers, including, for example, language barriers where the, in a country where there's multiple languages, there was uh, health announcements were often only in the main language, meaning certain people wouldn't be reached, as well as literacy barriers. and. I think also issues around the um, sort of distrust and uh, opposite, mm. and sort of rumours being spread and f- false information being spread across COVID-19 and mm. I don't remember the exact figure but a lot of people actually got information from, not necessarily from official sources but through friends and families or disabled people's organisations
0: who played a big part in making sure that their members had accurate information misinformation is a big issue uh, even if you're not a person living with a disability but i know for uh, just anecdotally uh, but also just from some policy research here in canada that a number of people with disabilities and their their allied organizations have talked about how they don't often trust uh hospitals and the medical establishment um because they feel that there's a lot of inherent ableism or discrimination did that issue come up at all in your research it didn't come up
1: specifically but there was uh, elements of that and i think particularly it's particularly pronounced i think in institutions as well where there's very little accents for residents to uh, of, to official information that doesn't come through through institutional staff uh, so it's and i think there's previous studies that we looked at as well around barriers to Accessing healthcare and a lot of that was about mm-hmm. uh, one of the major barriers was negative experiences in um, previous healthcare encounters with doctors and basically the issue of mistrust. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the evidence really shows that th- th- there was rampant discrimination against disabled people during when accessing treatments So I think it's very understandable in a way that um, there was a, that those trust issues persisted and during the pandemic.
0: Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the other the, one of the other sort of arguments that we hear a lot about in Canada is the impact on our hospital system, and that a lot of routine healthcare sort of fell to the wayside because of the pandemic in the low and middle income countries where they may not have a socialized model of medicine like we do here in Canada. Did the pandemic mean that a lot of routine healthcare and medical needs for people with disabilities inadvertently fell to the wayside and what's been the impact of that? Uh,
1: Yes, that was definitely the case. It was a significant impact um, on routine and emergency care. And it's worth bearing in mind that healthcare infrastructure in low and middle income countries isn't very well developed. A lot of people can't access healthcare due to poverty anyway, because, uh, they just can't afford to access healthcare regularly. Um, so a lot of it is not run through governments, but it's run perhaps through humanitarian organisations. But funding tends to be very specific, very targeted, and often given for a specific time to address a specific issue, but there's a lack of sustainability that really leads to long-term improvement. And then when you have a crisis like COVID-19 on top of that, it really kind of breaks down. and one of the key findings I think was that disabled specific services to um, address disabled people uh, to help disabled people or to provide Mm -hmm. uh, mobility aids or accessible technology to disabled people those services were usually the first
0: to be classed as non-essential and therefore Mm -hmm. discontinued. I'm Joita Gupta and my guest today is research fellow at the University of Birmingham Vera Kubins, who is also the co-author of a report that examines how people with disabilities have fared in low- to middle-income countries during the pandemic. Vera, you talked previously about how a lot of people have seen that routine healthcare has fallen to the wayside due to the pandemic let's just zero in a little bit on mental health specifically because it has been shown to be a major concern during the pandemic with mental health and welfare sort of being top of mind for a lot of people what sort of services exist for people with disabilities and how has the pandemic had an impact on these services Our research shows that mental health services like other services were impacted
1: um, quite significantly Um, often uh, they were not able to adapt um, these services to be delivered remotely which is um, likely what happened in uh, a lot of high-income countries where we just moved to having the um, these uh, services online but that wasn't really possible for a lot of people to access so that sort of uh, contrasted with the fact that um, emerging evidence already from from China, where the pandemic started, is showing that there's a significant rise in PTSD symptoms, a lot among people, a significant rise in suicides. And that's the impact, of, um, that's the case for both disabled and non-disabled people, including people with um, mental health conditions, but also physical disabilities. And evidence from previous pandemics has shown that um, mental health impacts
0: are likely to be long-term and there will be, it will be an issue for years to come. How about education? A lot of school closures, I'm sure, across the world. How did people with disabilities make the adjustment to to remote learning, or did people just uh, fall through the cracks because that remote learning option wasn't really accessible or available?
1: A lot of children in uh, disabled children in low and middle income countries um, weren't actually in school to start with, so it's about fifty percent globally. Of disabled children are in school, but it's much lower in some countries where it's as little as 1% of uh, disabled children attending primary school. And for a lot of these children, moving to, uh, that were in school, moving to home learning so presented significant barriers, including parents not really being equipped to support their children with learning, um, not really having accessible learning materials because the materials provided weren't adapted specifically to teaching disabled children. I think there's one example where there were was a boarding school where children were being taught sign language. And when those children returned home because the school closed, the parents weren't able to communicate with them because they weren't familiar with the sign language. Um, and particularly access to technology and the inaccessibility of technology were two main barriers, particularly also in rural areas or families with multiple children that just didn't have enough devices. And it it was usually disabled children and girls missing out uh, where parents had to
0: prioritize about who gets access to schooling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of families, a lot of the the caregiving for people with disabilities in many of these low- and middle-income countries no doubt falls to family members what sort of an impact did the pandemic have in the receipt of care and was isolation a factor for people with disabilities when friends and families not only couldn't provide the care but just couldn't look in on them either um
1: isolation and neglect was a a major impact particularly because there are very few kind of formal care services most people rely on informal care networks on families friends and the community to provide care for for disabled uh, disabled individuals and when that was not possible due to lockdowns. There's um, significant evidence that many disabled people weren't able to get their essential needs met. And I think the most, one of the most striking examples was a news story um, about a Chinese teenager who was left at home alone for a week after his parent, uh, his family, mm-hmm. his family were forcibly quarantined in a quarantine center, and there was no alternative care, care provided to him. So he died. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember so this. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's a really, I think that's one of the kind of most stark examples of the neglect um just because it was a complete disruption for many disabled people who had no access to alternative care and that was compounded by sort of the interest, bigger wider infrastructure barriers with like lack of accessible transport and uh, not being able to access food and medicine um mm-hmm. independently not being able to go out to shops to uh, to access to buy their essentials due to the complete disruption of of transport
0: and the the increased infrastructure barriers. You know, when the pandemic and the first lockdowns happened, I, like my colleagues with and without disabilities, just started working from home and it really went off without too many hiccups. I'm sure you had to work from home yourself for a time or, you know, uh, learn from home for a time. What sort of an impact did the lockdown have on employment prospects for people with disabilities. Did uh, people manage to make that transition to remote working or did some of those employment opportunities fall through because of the pandemic? Remote working,
1: um, I think was an option for the minority of people. So there's some evidence Mm -hmm. that um, say people um, were working from home but experienced additional barriers while we're working from again around technology particularly but for most people um most people most disabled people are likely to be either unemployed or employed in informal work and that includes mm-hmm. uh sort of very small scale businesses uh, selling fruit or t- running small shops or working in the tourism sector and obviously all these sec- all these areas were particularly impacted by the pandemic and particularly for those running small shops there were not really able access to access any kind of government support because they were technically self-employed, but they were too small to apply for business loans, for example. So it was very much uh, the sort of the insecurity of the informal sector really kind of being taken to its extreme
0: during the pandemic. Just related to that, I know here in Canada, they made a one-time $600 payment to recognize the additional costs incurred by people with disabilities during the pandemic. That was here in Canada. What about some of the low- and middle-income countries you looked at? Did governments step up with any sort of financial support uh, to assist people with disabilities during the pandemic? Or was poverty, which I'm sure was a case before COVID-19, something that just deepened because of the pandemic? Uh, the emerging evidence is definitely that
1: poverty has
0: significantly
1: deepened for many and most governments took uh, some sort of some measures to provide relief but normally that was short term um, not t- specifically targeted at disabled people it was usually blanket measures and sometimes disabled people were specifically excluded from additional support if they were in receipt of d- other disability benefits for example and there's also a number of barriers to accessing that additional support, which was around not having the information about what was available, um, particularly the difficulties around providing proof of disability and overcoming the administrative hurdles of accessing that support. And that was particularly issues, for example, for refugees that don't have the paperwork to apply for um, for relief um, because they don't have proof of disability. And there were also barriers at distribu- distribution points, which were often accessible. Um, and there wasn't really a way of prioritising disab- uh, disabled people's access to to that support. Uh, some of the support was financial, but a lot of the time it was um, kind of in-kind support. So food as well, which was very much restricted to um, sort of usually a a bag of rice, but uh, not really kind of addressing um, kind of the wider issue of needing Mm -hmm. kind of longer term support and not really being particularly nutritious, kind of a nutritiously valuable as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Your report was very thorough because you covered off a lot of ground and I regret that we won't be able to talk about all of it, but in the few minutes that we have left, you've clearly painted a very bleak picture of how people with disabilities have fared in some of these low and middle income countries. What do you think needs to change moving forward? I think
1: one of the things that actually needs to change is that everything is so bleak. I mean, the pandemic has been a horrific thing for all of us to go through, To Through to, but I think there's a problem really about the lack of sort of positive stories um, about disability. So it's very much we found that um, the a lot there's very much still a medical and tragedy point of um, view of disability that prevails in a lot of the research and a lot of the reports, and that's definitely something that needs to be addressed to understand really why disabled people are vulnerable and not uh, just uncritically accept that that we are. So looking beyond the health impacts, but looking really holistically at the impacts. And one of the other key things is to ensure that disabled people are involved in um, planning measures to ensure that they are not excluded from management measures to address the impact of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so what our key recommendation is really to um, ensure that disabled people are ideally leading these uh, discussions
0: about how uh, recovery from COVID-19 can be disability inclusive. Vera, thank you very much for discussing your findings and your research with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Vera Kubins is a co-author of a new report that examines the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on people with disabilities in low and middle income countries. Vera is a research fellow in the Department of Education at the University of Birmingham. She was in Birmingham, England. If you missed any of our conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Vera Cubins for being my guest on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majeed is the technical producer for the program. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Paula Denine is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.